the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. Uh, it's been a delight uh, having in the first hour. He'll join us for the rest of the show, Dr. Tevi Choi, usually a regular guest uh, calling in on our guest line from Washington, D.C., was in uh, town for a debate last night and uh, has stayed an extra day to be with us. He is the author of several books, presidential and cultural historian, that he is most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House, from Truman to Trump. Uh, Tevi, we've been talking a lot about the Middle East, and I want to go back to it in a few moments. But first, young David, you had told me right before the show started that uh, you went to a uh, a special event on Friday, and uh, you t- you talk first. We'll go. We'll give it to you first. Take the microphone, David. What did you do Friday? I had a wonderful, godly experience this past Friday. I was uh, given the chance to uh, go to a community service, which we advertised on the Seth Leibson Show, I believe, Thursday evening. This was uh, at uh, Congregation Beth Tefillah, which our good friend Rabbi Elush is the head rabbi at. And first of all, uh, I have never been to a temple service like that before. There was a Shabbat. There was a service... I, it was so, somewhat of a culture shock for me. <laughs> well, for example, I walked in the wrong door. <laughs> I didn't realize that there were uh, girl and guy sides. Yeah. And, um, but everything was – This isn't a, the University of Pennsylvania swimming team after all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, everything was in Hebrew. That was also another culture shock for me. I just kind of had to stand there and look around. And, you original know, intent, man. We're talking original bow intent here. People were bowing yeah. and uh, look around and, you know, when everybody faced certain directions, I also had to join in. But uh, what a um, culture shock. It was uh, a blessing. For example, uh, that congregation has at least four families who have uh, children or cousins that are serving in the IDF right now. One of those being uh, Rabbi Elush, and I will say, as of the most recent updates, Rabbi Elush's son, who's a paratrooper and a sniper, on the front lines is safe and has been in contact with the Elushes uh, multiple times. I had a wonderful meal after the service. I had to uh, ceremonially wash my hands, and of course I had to have a a head covering, but uh, boy, it was uh, beautiful. Multiple uh, courses, they had uh, salads, uh, hummus, eggplant, uh, tabbouleh, they had uh, falafel. That was just the first course. And then they had a a soup, and after that they had uh, lamb and chicken kebab, some vegetables, and uh, some desserts afterwards. And did you say hi to Rabbi Elish? Of course, and he gave me a big hug. Oh, that's wonderful. And And it it was just a very spiritual, a blessing experience. I I will say I've never felt more heavy of heart during a religious service in my life. Interesting. It just, it deeply pulled on my heartstrings to be there. Well, I've received emails from uh, several listeners uh, who aren't Jewish who have been going to Friday night services, and uh, they each have variants on the theme that you said. The thing that they uh, each express is how welcome they have felt Mm -hmm. and uh, how part of that community they immediately uh, became. And it takes, what, about an hour to get through the whole thing? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, I was there for about three because they had the Shabbat afterwards. Oh, because you had the dinner. Yeah. But uh, I, 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 I don't know. It was uh, very uh, rough. I mean, of course, it's with sundown and yeah. after the candle lighting service. Yeah. So it's it's a, a guesstimate. Yeah, yeah, about an hour. Yeah. I mean, Rabbi Lush gave a, a great message. And the theme of his message was something that he had heard from his son, oh. who was obviously serving in the front lines. And he called his father and he said, Daddy, I've seen things that will yeah. affect me my whole life. Yeah, and he's and, 20. It was just shocking. Right. And, of course, he didn't expand upon those, even yeah. for his father. He said, I won't. Yeah. But what he said was, they attacked us on the most uh, happy day of our calendar, mm-hmm. Simchat Torah. And he said, they don't want us to be happy. Yeah. So what you can do at home is be happy. Yeah. Nice. Be joyous, dance, nice. and sing, and nice. be happy. Nice. Nice report. Good of you to go, David. Um I, I don't know what to say, Teddy. Well, I, I know something to say. Okay. I, I want to say thank you to David. Okay. Um, the support that I've gotten from people in the non-Jewish world has really been so heartwarming. I've had people who I haven't seen in years emailing me, texting me, colleagues from the Bush administration, and they're coming up to me and they're saying, we stand with you, we stand with Israel. And it's so important because it's such a lonely time in many ways. The, the Jewish people feel like they're alone, especially when they hear the horrible things that are said in col- on college campuses about Israel and about Jews, and they see the um, uh, many nations of the world are, are not with us, although many are, which, which is greatly appreciated. So I, I really think that's wonderful what David did. Um, you know, and Rabbi Alusha's son, he had no obligation to serve in the IDF. And he's not just serving, he's serving in a very elite, very frontline Europe that uh, unit that is going to see a lot of incredibly difficult fighting. So we pray for his safety. We pray for Israel. The people who did Israel harm want to do Americans harm. They want to do harm to the West. As I said earlier, uh, it wasn't just Israelis killed. It wasn't just 30 Americans killed, which is a staggering number, but it was Canadians and Austrians and Germans and Frenchmen and Brits and Nepalis and Thai people. These people... Two Swedes today, by the way, in Sweden, if I, if I yeah, saw Yeah, and that's that. a separate attack, but also by an by Islamist, Islamist yeah. terror organization. Yeah. Uh, these people want nothing less than the downfall of Western civilization. And we need to be prepared to fight back. Uh, I was saying earlier that we've had these attacks in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, a horrible attack at 9-11, and then in the ISIS attacks of 2010s, and now this happening, and these things happening in 2020. It's not just one thing. So we need to be prepared for the extent of the struggle that is being thrust upon us. David, I don't know if at the chance, uh, if at the break you might have the chance to uh, see if it's available online. Uh, Mark Levin, you know Mark Levin, uh, he has a he has a uh, Life, Liberty, and Levin uh, series on Saturdays and Sundays on Fox News. If you can get his closing uh, segment uh, from Sunday night, it, 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 yes, closing segment from last night, uh, I emailed him afterwards how beautiful I thought it was. Uh, he, um, he, he said what Tevi said. He, uh, he, he just wanted to thank uh, the non-Jewish community. Uh, for the support that they have uh, shown and said. This is a testing time. Gerard Baker, over in the Wall Street Journal, makes the point that, uh, rightly or wrongly, Joe Biden has now several times, including when he announced his run for president, that the uh, impetus for his running was seeing faces of twisted hate at Charlottesville 
and um, if he doesn't see what uh, the faces of twisted hate with the arms of hate and the actions of hate attached to them can do, or for that matter, if he can't see those twisted faces of hate on the very college campuses that give so much support to his political movement and his political party and muster up a a little bit something stronger than don't, 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 don't to Scott Pelley with now mixed signals as to what the administration's policy is going to be in the Middle East in the only way that Joe Biden can mix those signals up by saying something seemingly clear and then having it muddled, uh, then we're going to be very much in the deep soup because this is a time for clear leadership. I, You know, when George W. Bush became president, Tevi, your old boss, there were a lot of doubts and there were a lot of questions, and it was a very people forget how controversial that election was and uh, how much even the opposition wasn't willing to concede, so much so that Al Gore on the private speech circuit having lost ultimately to George W. Bush, insisted that he be introduced as the elected president of the United States. Uh, think about that for a moment. And then 9-11 came as, you know, the debates were mostly about things like charitable choice and welfare reform. 9-11 came, and uh, I think the country breathed a collective sigh of relief to see that they had in the White House that which they had scorned, someone who saw the world in black and white, someone who could see the face of evil and understand it for what it was and see the face of decency and good and civility and speak up for what that was with no moral ambiguity, uh, no moral equivalencies, and uh, no moral hesitations. Um, That was kind of the cause of someone invoking William Shakespeare about George W. Bush, that some men are born great, some men achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon him. And one wonders what the perfect example of that would be, or the perfect uh, piece of evidence that would be for George W. Bush. But as soon as September 12th came, it was clear it was thrust upon him and he met the moment. About Joe Biden, it's only getting worse and worse at a time when we need it to be getting better and better. And uh, a nation turns its confused eyes to what kind of leadership. It's not at the White House, certainly not at the House of Representatives. I say it again and again and again. Nature abhors a vacuum, but evil loves it. We better get over it pretty quickly. I'll let you talk when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy, presidential and cultural historian, is our guest. I'm going to have him talk to us a little bit about presidential leadership in a few moments. Uh, but first, I want to go to um, the most important voice, which is our callers. Uh, let me um, let me start with uh, Jason in Scottsdale. Hi, Jason. You're on with Tevi Troy. Hi. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I want to know when it was that the Democratic Party decided to choose to be friends with the Muslims instead of the Jews. It started in, I think, with Carter, but maybe you can tell me more accurately. Um, I know that they primaried Elliot Engel from New York, who was a Jewish representative for a long time, a good congressman, and now they replaced him with Fire Alarm Jamal. Um, what's the roots and the impetus? Is it because the Muslims have oil or what? Are there more Muslims? Why did they choose the Muslims over the Jews? 
I, I, I take the question. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Tevi, um, I would have pegged it perhaps not Muslims and Jews, but uh, the state of Israel uh, versus uh, Arab uh, supremacy. And I would have pegged it probably to 1984 with the presidential campaign of Jesse Jackson as a turning point. But you tell me, you're the historian here. Oh, there's so many turning points. If you look back to 1947, 1948, the um, most of the military establishment was opposed to recognizing Israel. The national security establishment was opposed to it, and Truman stood strong for Israel. And so that gave the Democratic Party its reputation that it had for a while of being pro-Israel. The first president that really harmed that reputation was Jimmy Carter. And the um, thought was that um, Begin, Menachem Begin, who negotiated the Egyptian peace agreement that happened in 1979, was leery of going to Camp David to negotiate the accords with Sadat, Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Jimmy Carter, because he feared that Carter would join Sadat, the Egyptian president, in ganging up on Begin. And even not pro-Israel historians have said Begin was right to be worried. So I I think Carter was more of a turning point. Uh, Then, obviously, we had a 12-year interregnum where uh, you had uh, Republican presidents. Uh, Ronald Reagan was quite pro-Israel. George H.W. Bush had his issues with Israel. And then Bill Clinton came, and Clinton was someone who was favorably inclined to towards Israel. It doesn't mean I agree with everything he did on Israel. And then George, a- George W. Bush comes, and he was affirmatively pro-Israel, perhaps the most pro-Israel president we had had that time. And then there's a stark contrast when Obama is elected in 2008, who's the first president who really comes in with a chip on his shoulder about Israel, even more than Carter, who I think developed anonymous towards Israel. I think Obama starts with anonymous towards Israel. And so I think 2008 and the Obama election is the biggest inflection point. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Tevi. Thank you, Jason. Rick, uh, hi, Rick in Phoenix. How are you? Hi, Seth. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. This has been a great program today. And I've got a question for Dr. Troy. Uh, since he is a presidential historian, uh, I would like to ask him if he would uh, give his preliminary evaluation of President Biden and his White House? Oh, perfect question for what I wanted to get into. Presidential leadership, starting with Biden, maybe working backwards. I I assume Rick is talking about Presidential Biden writ large throughout his presidency. And I would have to say it's, it's been wanting. I mean, I think there have been serious strategic missteps and defeats for the United States in each year of the Biden presidency, starting with the disastrous pullout from Afghanistan in the first year of the Biden presidency, followed by the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, which may have been encouraged by what happened with the Afghan pullout because it showed the U.S. having a lack of resolve. And then now we have this horrific monstrous attack on Israel in the third year of the Biden presidency that really puts a lot of uh, U.S. equities at risk, not just the fact that we lost 30 Americans to the murderous savages of Hamas and additional Americans, we don't know how many, have been taken hostage. So real serious defeats for America throughout the Biden administration. But I will say this as well, that perhaps, perhaps there's an opportunity here because there's such revulsion on the part of the American people writ large by the anti-Israel caucus within the left and that even the Biden administration has had to take very strong, a strong stance in favor of Israel. And Biden had to rebuke 
left-wing anti-Israel staffers within his own administration in order to put out the positive statement that he put out on Israel on Wednesday. So perhaps this could be another watershed moment where we start to move back in the other direction. I'm not guaranteeing that happens because there's still a lot of very problematic groups on the left, and it's not clear Biden has the resolve or staying power to stick through it. But this could be a moment where people in the Democratic Party say, hey, if we want to win elections, we can't be the pro-Hamas party. You were telling me, even though with even given all that, even with regard to Joe Biden's statement last week, there was great internal dissension in the White House that he should take the stand that he did ultimately take. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and again, I, I want, you know, if you've heard me on the show, you're not you know, I'm not someone who uh, praises Biden uh, ever. But it was good that he took that stance and rebuked his staff that wanted to have a more so-called neutralist staff or a statement where they said, you know, there, there's problems on both sides. This both sidesism is really dangerous in a moment of moral clarity. We shouldn't have moral muddles. So I again, I credit Biden for taking that strong statement. In the context of a longer administration that has been very problematic, let's see if he sticks to it. And look, he, like other politicians, they read the polls and the American people are disgusted by what happened in Israel. Again, 30 Americans died. People don't talk about this enough. This, this is, as you said, the largest loss of life of Americans in a terrorist incident since 9-11. And nobody's talking about that aspect of it, which is horrific. Obviously, what happened to the Israelis is also horrific. But we need to recognize that we are faced with some forces that really hate us. And if the Democratic Party is going to go down the road of wokeism and being pro all these uh, third world uh, liberationist movements, that is at the cost of America and of Western civilization. It might be the cost of the Democratic Party, too, the least of those three, but nonetheless an important part of it because as I heard you explaining last night at this debate – uh, something I did not know was that for as much as Joe Biden likes to talk about how this isn't your father or grandfather's Republican Party, said it again in his speech this past weekend, I believe he said to Prime Minister Netanyahu, this isn't Scoop Jackson's Democratic Party anymore either. You want to say what that means real quick? Yeah, so you're, you're right. Biden um, uh, does, does say that the Republican Party is something different than it was in the past, which is less so than what uh, the distinction with the Democratic Party in the past, because Scoop Jackson was an anti-communist, uh, staunchly pro-Israel Democrat from the West Coast, from Washington State, in the 1960s and 1970s, ran for president multiple times, got close, uh, and a lot of uh, smart neoconservatives emerged from the Scoop Jackson orbit. And when Biden said to Netanyahu, this is not Scoop Jackson's Democratic Party, that meant he was acknowledging to Netanyahu that he has to deal with a party that is less pro-Israel than it used to be. But perhaps, again, with the revulsion that we see over the horrific uh, Hamas massacre, maybe the Democratic Party will recognize that the bulk of the American people do not stand with Hamas and they do stand with Israel. We'll see. We'll see if Joe Biden is stronger than Nancy Pelosi. I say that because she could not get her caucus to condemn anti-Semitism. We'll see if he's stronger than she is. You'll forgive me if I have my doubts. We'll be right back. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems, enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, which may have led 
to the Biden presidency, Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt and reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency. They've been used to store wealth throughout history. And thousands of you have trusted the veterans at the Midas Gold Group, just like Seb Gorka and I have, because they're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com. Historian uh, Tevi Troy, Dr. Tevi Troy, is in studio with me today, presidential and cultural historian Tevi, lessons on presidential leadership. You do a lot of talks on this, yes? We could, yeah, take, we uh, could use a few right now. Yeah, I have a leadership training course called 1600 Lessons, 1600lessons.com online if you're interested. But I use the models of presidential leadership to model leadership in your own company or in your organization. Because presidents really can show us so much in terms of how they deal with disaster how they build a cohesive team and avoid infighting, how they prepare for leadership, how they develop successors. So all this is really important to leadership. And now when we're in a fraught moment, we need presidential leadership. And look, uh, Joe Biden's had obviously a long and storied career in the Senate, but we don't really need someone who's 82, 83 years old to be leading the U.S. in a potential war. So, I mean, we we really are going to need a younger generation of leadership, and we're going to need it soon. And I would say that to someone who's a Republican or a Democrat. It's it's, it's not a job for an older person. It's a very difficult job. It's a taxing job. We've all seen pictures of how many presidents, whether it was Carter or Bush or Obama or Lincoln, they all age terribly in office because it is a grueling and very difficult job because you really have the fate of not just America, but of the free world on your shoulders. And that that is something that really weighs on you. When Ronald Reagan was running and then elected at age 69, 69, I believe it was, when he was inaugurated, um, there was a lot of this kind of conversation about him. And there was a lot of conversation really about Jimmy Carter in respect to him because they were saying of Carter that he couldn't um, – He couldn't manage the presidency because the presidency had become so demanding that this was an office you could not control anymore. Uh, You could not tame. uh, You could not manage, uh, even for someone uh, more youthful like Jimmy Carter. How much worse would it be? A fortiori, would it be a problem for Ronald Reagan? Uh, Fair to say he proved them differently. Uh, He proved them wrong. Uh, The presidency is manageable. what are the lessons it takes to manage such a big operation? I mean, it is a huge operation, obviously. Uh, how, how many staff operate under the guise of 1,600 rough guess? Well, there, there's 1,800 people who work in the executive office okay. of the president. Okay. That includes— That's the executive office, 1,800 right. people. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's, that, just, that, that's just the C-suite. Okay. But, but that's what it's called, EOP. And yeah. that, that includes— the people who are career people at the Office of Management Budget, the U.S. Trade Representative, the U.S. Drug Czar. So there's a lot of people there who are career people who serve administration in and administration out. The people who we would traditionally think of as White House aides, perhaps somebody running around on the show, the West Wing, that's closer to about 400 people. So those are people the president brings in who are the president supposedly trusts and um, has so, have usually had some connection to the campaign or the party apparatus. And they are there to 
really carry out the bidding of the president and let the uh, offices know what he's doing. The cabinets uh, give them their instructions, uh, deal with the press. When, when I was at the White House, we really distilled it to the president does two things. Number one is they have external events where they convey what the president is thinking and doing. And two, they have decision meetings where the president decides what is going to happen, what is the policy that we're going to pursue. And you really, it's amazing. The president seems to do millions of things, but you really can distill it to those two things. Everything falls in those categories. And if you can see it as the management challenge it is, it is a doable job. But the problem with Jimmy Carter was that he was a terrible micromanager. In fact, one of his aides said that he's probably the highest paid assistant secretary of housing and urban (laughs) development in the history of the (laughs) government because he got so involved in the minor details. Interesting. And, of course, you haven't even begun to talk about all the – you talked about agencies at the executive level. We haven't even talked about the departments at the cabinet level that he's also ultimately responsible for as well. All right. Tevi Troy is my guest. Uh, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Well, this is Thunder Island. Speaking of Thunderbirds, she was the girl in the Thunderbird. Suzanne Summers, rest in peace. Yeah. Now can I convince you to watch American Graffiti? I don't know. It was the 50th anniversary this year. Am I right that Happy Days kind of came out of that? Or yeah, I think two out uh, of four cast members from Happy Days came from uh, American Graffiti. And what, Tevi, you're a cultural historian. It showed us a taste and a thirst in the 1970s for the 1950s or something. Yeah, that's like? absolutely right. And sometimes you have this kind of decade revival two decades later. And so there was a real interest in the 50s in the 1970s and uh, – and, and Happy Days was, was part of that. Happy Days spawned a lot of shows on its own. Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, Laverne and Shirley. Mork and, Mork. Mork Mork and, and Mindy. Mindy came out of Happy Days. Yeah, Mork yeah. and Mindy came out of Happy Days. Joni Loves Chachi. Chachi. Can't forget that. Yeah. yeah. What show created the I most? Remember Shanana? Oh, it was Shanana that? was another. That was, that was a 50s right. uh, uh, tribute. Um, the show that created the most offshoots. I think I know I the answer. Is All in the Family. All in the Family. Because oh. it led to the Jeffersons and Maude and Archie's Place, Archie Bunker's Place. Yeah. Um, right so, on, Maud. Yeah. And Gloria. And Good Times. And Gloria. Oh, it led to Good Times Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's but a constant. Yes. Like maybe start, the Star Treks have also had more offshoots subsequently. Yeah. There's another relationship here to Suzanne Wait Summers. a minute, Tubby. Yes. Are you also a Trekkie? Um, oh, I'm kind of an original Trekkie. Of the hey. Show. I have not watched the later woke PC ones. I would agree with you. I would agree I'm with you. I'm losing control of the show. <laughs> There I is, found a brother. There, yes. There is, a, <laughs> there is another connection here. Suzanne Summers was on the very first episode of Love Boat in 19, I think it was 1977, if I'm not mistaken. She was on the very first episode. And what actress or actor had more appearances on the Love Boat than any other? I'll give you a hint. She was in Happy Days, Marion Ross. Okay, enough of that. Tevi Troy is my guest, cultural historian and presidential historian. I was going to guess Charo, by the way, because she always seemed to be on the love she boat. Is a, she is a good guest. A frequent guest on the love boat. She is a good guest and a good guest, but she is not the right answer to the question. Fair enough. Um, right. What I was asking was uh, what, what I was wanting to ask you about, Tevi, Ronald Reagan, 69, enters the White House. There's a lot of talk that the White House is too big for any one man. I think that was the line. These, there were editorials all over the place like that. Uh, the White House is too big for any one man. And uh, he showed them that that wasn't true. Uh, what was the secret to the success of Ronald Reagan's presidency? Uh, and is it the secret of other presidencies, uh, other presidency successes? 
And is one of them vision? Yes, there are two really great things about Ronald Reagan among the many, many things, but from a management perspective, number one is he knew how to delegate. Mm -hmm. He knew he couldn't do everything. He was a great delegator. And he didn't try to do everything. The second thing is he had a vision that had been clearly articulated for multiple decades through his speeches and through his writings. And Peggy Noonan famously said in her great book, What I Saw at the Revolution, the idea of Reagan ruled. There was no question about what Reagan's preferred policy positions were. There were questions about the uh, approach to do or tactics or strategy, and, and there were certainly were some titanic fights within what the What would Reagan government. want was not a tough question right. to answer. But they knew yeah. Reagan's perspective, and they knew Reagan's approach to policy. I mean, for example, on the Cold War, Dick Allen, who was his first national security advisor, asked Reagan what the vision is. He says, simple, we win, they lose. Pretty clear. Uh, how you carry out? Okay, that's a matter of discussion. But Reagan knew how to set clear direction to his staff and then delegate and let them get it done. Trying to remember if it was Michael Oakeshott or someone like that. No, it was Roger Scruton. Scruton? Scruton. Roger Scruton. Roger Scruton, who said that a good thing can become a bad thing if not tempered properly. And it might have been that delegation um, and his uh, and his uh, ethos of delegating that also turned into some of his biggest Achilles heels as, uh, Achilles heel as, as well. For example, Iran Contra. Yes, fair. Yeah, but one of the problems, and and Reagan did make a mistake here, is he accepted the worst staff trade in history. This is when James Baker and Don Regan, not Reagan, Don Regan, came in. One was chief of staff, Baker. The other was secretary of the treasury, Regan. And Regan kind of complained that he didn't get to see Reagan enough while he was secretary of the treasury. Baker wanted a cabinet slot because he thought it would give him more gravitas. And so they agreed to switch jobs. And they were both trusted by Reagan, so he allowed this job switch. It took place in the second term. And Reagan was a terrible chief of staff. Uh, in fact, Nancy Reagan said that he knew all about the chief part, but he didn't understand the of staff part. Oh, really? And he was one of the ones who really let the Iran-Contra thing fester and get out of control. Yeah. It also says something interesting about second terms of a presidency, too. They are notoriously plagued, aren't they? They are notoriously less successful than successful first terms. Yeah, that's true. And and William Sapphire, the great conservative columnist, uh, even suggested to Reagan back in 83 that Reagan not run for a second term, that he'd accomplished so much, and that uh, perhaps he should ride off into the sunset. And second terms have indeed been the Achilles heel of multiple presidents. Think about uh, Bill Clinton was impeached in his second term. Nixon. And George Bush had Katrina, and obviously Nixon was uh, impeached and, and le- uh, was almost impeached and, uh, and, le- and resigned from the office. So uh, J- uh, Lyndon Johnson went from a massive landslide to uh, basically skulking out of office in disgrace. So se- second terms have been a bit of a curse to American presidents. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Other other leaderships. Other leadership lessons. You actually wrote a book on crisis. Uh, Shall we wake the president? Presidencies during a crisis, and it seems like there have been any number of crises that the current president has not been able to step up to. Uh, some self-generated. Uh, the one that, you know, plagues, I think, and sticks the hardest to this moment is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That would be one that in many respects might be claimed as self-generated or self-created. But there is something, there is something about this president 
who seems uniquely unable to respond to any kind of a crisis, and I think it's beyond something beyond age. I don't know what it is. I, is it that his prime is up? Is it that he is no longer interested? What is it? The CBS interview on 60 Minutes last night with Scott Pelley, if there weren't wake-up calls before then, there should have been from that one. And today, no one seems to be talking about it. But you watch it, and Scott Pelley is clearly giving this man crutches. Yeah, and, and the media often does it. And they think. In fact, doing... that was funny because with right. Fetterman, the one who got in trouble was the one who pointed it out, right? Right. right. But they the think NBC they're report. doing the presidents a favor okay. by giving them crutches, but they really are doing no favors because if you are propped up and you're given easier questions because the media seem to like you, when you're faced with a tough situation, you know, Vladimir Putin's not going to prop you up. Vladimir Putin's not going to give you crutches. Hamas is not going to give you any easy answers either. So you need to be at the top of your game, and I think the media needs to ask tough questions of every president. Not rude questions, because we all know the media uh, seems to save those for Republicans, but uh, but being too soft on a president isn't any good either. And, and I would say that, you know, I learned this in college, that by being in the minority as conservatives on American college campuses, back when you were allowed to have arguments, we were able to hone our argumentative skills against the majority of liberals on campus who had never heard these conservatives' argument, arguments before, and I, I think it made us stronger. Now, unfortunately, today on today's college campuses, you're not able to make the argument for fear of being canceled, and I think that's a real loss. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Dr. Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Portions of the show brought to you by our dear friends at Y-Refi, a great uh, company based here locally, active in the community with a f- phenomenal investment. It's an investment, a portfolio with a up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. And it's an investment that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve should you be concerned about such things as a recession or stock market volatility or bank failures or inflation. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, which is a due diligence approved firm. And you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24. 888-YREFI-24. Did you get a lot of feedback on one of the founders of Y-REFI playing taps for us on Friday? That was great, wasn't it, Don? From Y-REFI uh, did a recording of taps for uh, the slain... Uh, Americans and uh, Israelis in Israel that we closed the show with on Friday. Tevi, we only have a couple minutes left, and then we'll go into the next hour. Hugh Hallman's going to join us because I just thought, kindred minds, we might have a larger conversation about conservatism. It dawned on me Hugh was in the neighborhood. I'd bring him in because the three of us all approach conservatism slightly differently, and I was thinking it might be fun to just have a discussion about what conservatism means today and the various things we might agree on or disagree on, or might be able to uh, cohere on. But you had mentioned universities in the last segment and the kinds of debates we used to be able to have there. I'm fascinated by what goes on in the university today. I've been fascinated not only for what's been going on there the last week, but uh, for the last 30, 40 years, I suppose. How important are they today? Are they as important as they used to be? Well, I think they're making themselves less important and less relevant. And uh, I have a son who's at a quality university. I don't want to get details. And when he went off to college, I said to him, 
You should be very careful. I don't want you to talk about politics with anyone or be in a ro- alone in a room with a girl. And I said, when I was at college, all I wanted to do was talk politics and be alone in a room with a girl. So uh, things have changed a great deal in the 30 years since I've been in college and not for the better. And it's a shame. Yeah. Uh, We might pursue this idea that they've become less and less relevant. I'm wondering if that's something that we want to fix on. I'm wondering if they've become more and more relevant because more and more influential in a certain sense. Professors used to be upset that they weren't paid enough attention to. Not enough people took them seriously. I'm now worried that too many people do. We can, we can, we can pick on that a little bit, and we'll do so in future conversations. Uh, maybe get into it with Mr. Hallman, too, if we have a chance. I'm Seth. Be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 